thank you for joining us for the fifth episode of the Resilient Leadership Learning from Crisis podcast. This week, we're discussing insights on leadership during a crisis, distilled from interviews conducted between the 11th and 15th of May. These interviews have been conducted with the same group of 12 senior decision makers in city government and large global organizations who are navigating their organization's response to the COVID-19 pandemic. I'm Seth Schultz, the Executive Director of the Resilient Shift. Joining me as always is Peter Willis. Hey, Peter, welcome back. Hi, Seth. How are you doing? Good. I'm hanging in there. Um, I think this is two and a half, close to three months of lockdown here in the in the Schultz Casa in upstate New York. But uh, we're hanging in there. We're surviving. Good. Um, but I'm, I'm, as usual, very excited to be speaking to you and uh, hearing everything that's happening around the world from our various participants in leadership roles. So tell me what what's on the menu today. Yes. Well... Um, on the menu we have as a, uh, an hors d'oeuvre, although it is quite a substantial hors d'oeuvre, sir, I wouldn't order two of them, <laughs> is um, I want to talk about some very interesting observations around the, the simple fact that when a crisis arrives, it always lands somewhere where the ground is either prepared or unprepared. And this makes all the difference. So I've got a, a couple of interesting stories there. And then quite closely related to that is some interesting insights into how previous crises have either caused uh, the people I was talking to, their organizations to be prepared or not prepared and to have learned or not learned. And what a difference that makes. It's an incredibly obvious, simple point, but some, I think it was quite illuminating the way they thought about it. So that's really what I'd like to go. And then I've got a, a little bonbon for you at the end if you finish all your greens. Okay. I like that. I'm, no, I'm very curious. So we'll have to make sure we get to your, your surprise. I don't want to give it away, but there we go. Well, maybe let's start on this. Um, I'm interested slash scared about this, this concept of, you know, what the ground it's hitting. Has it been prepared, unprepared? This, uh, I guess, you know, in the U.S. context, which is where I'm from, this whole concept of pre-existing conditions, which, you know, to us here in the U.S. means something very specific to the healthcare system as to whether or not insurance will cover something, depending on whether or not you have a pre-existing condition. <laughs> I know that's not exactly the context we're talking about it here, but uh, an interesting analogy. Well, so, no, Tina, that's actually the very interesting thought because they, there are so many parallels between the, the body, the human individual body, and the body um, corporate, the city as a body, an organism, and then the state as an organism, never mind the world. And I think... There you're using an insurance uh, analogy where an insurer will want to know, before I give you an insurance contract, have you got pre-existing conditions? And were an insurer, given the job of saying to a city like my city, Cape Town, for example, Cape Town going to an imaginary insurer and saying, please, will you insure us against catastrophes happening here, like, you know, earthquake storms or pandemics? As the insurer, I would want to say, well, let me have a look at your pre-existing condition. What state are you in? Because not every city is equally robust when crisis arrives. That, it's, it's just, it's so obvious, but it begs the question of any leadership group within a city, a corporation, or a nation. Actually, it's the same with, with me as the leader of my body. 
is it worth investing in making my system more robust in peacetime when there isn't a crisis? You know, and that involves spending money and paying attention and doing dull things to make us, maybe even uh, creating some redundancy, which is not very efficient, et cetera, et cetera. Just on the off chance that that will help when crisis arrives. You know what, Peter, it's fascinating just to play out this analogy and where you're going, which I absolutely love, is you have actually, to your point, seen this shift in the healthcare industry. And now insurance, health insurance companies will, will provide free membership to gyms for people or for staff because it reduces the likelihood of heart attacks, obesity, and other things that are going to cost them more to, to cover in terms of health insurance. So it's exactly to your point that that is happening. Yes. And that that very idea, that model of um, insurance began here in South Africa, Adrian Gore, Discovery. It's now all over the world, this idea that you actually reward people for reducing their risk of dying early from avoidable diseases. So if you apply this to the, the city or the corporation or the state, I'm going to take one example from the, the last week's conversations. The chief resilience officer of city in your country in the States was telling me how the, the relationship between the city authority and the larger district authority is so riven with ancient rivalries and stories that she was told when she arrived there, not all that long ago, she was just, oh, don't expect them to help. You know, oh, no, they, we don't, don't try to collaborate with the, the district and so on which is kind of, you know, tolerable when you're in peacetime. But in a disaster, you absolutely need certain flows of resources and communication information to work. And you must not have egos and, um, I'm sorry, I don't talk to that person kind of situations. And she was on the call with me. She was, you know, I could pick up that she was still in a state of some shock because she urgently needs to get some money together to build out a further testing capacity in the city for COVID-19. And the money has to come from this organization, which makes it very difficult to access. Uh, and everybody in her organization is saying, oh, gosh, that's going to be difficult, and so on. So just as an example of an unresolved issue, because maybe it didn't seem so critical that it had to be resolved and heads knocked together during peacetime, it's now dramatically slowing something as important as setting up testing stations uh, when it's really needed. So that's a rather gloomy story. The flip side of that was a remarkable conversation I had with one of our participants who's normally domiciled in uh, your city, New York, but is Danish. And she was sitting in New York as the um, epidemic was growing in China and so on. And her government started sending her emails one a day saying, are you sure you're okay? Why don't you come back? We can make you safe. And she and her husband brushed it off to begin with, but then we're talking with other Danes living in the States and they said, we're getting these emails. We're thinking maybe we should go back. Long and short of it was that they did. And Denmark, as you may know, has a very well worked out and um, mature social care system. Healthcare is free for all. You pay high taxes, but you get a lot of social care back. And she said that we have felt incredibly safe here in Denmark. And Denmark is now has got virtually no new cases and they're opening up. I was talking with her just two hours ago, and she's saying that life in Copenhagen is sort of returning to normal, which is astonishing when she looks across at New York. 
And so there you have a long-term investment in the foundations of a caring society manifesting in a way that they are confident to say, no, we can take care of you. We know how to take care of you. Please do this, jump on a plane, come home, et cetera, et cetera. Now, you imagine any city in the world, any nation in the world, being in a position to say that to its charges, to its citizens, and as a yardstick to hold up and measure other states, other cities, even organizations, corporations, because I've been having some very interesting corporate conversations where there's clearly a very strong ethos of care that's being communicated immediately out to all staff and stakeholders. And those organizations and states and cities, by definition, are more robust and will cope with crisis when it arrives. It's going right back to some of the key things we were talking about last week about trust, transparency, and, and direct communication, but now kind of fascinatingly applied to this pre-existing conditions of what the status is of the needs of, of a community and or a company and its citizens and or staff. Really fascinating to see how this has kind of evolved this thought from last week to this week and the examples, you know, wow, very telling. I hadn't heard that about Denmark. That's amazing that the country was sending out emails to its citizens around the world saying, come back home. We got you. We'll take care of you. I mean, wow. And, and what, this, what this implies, to my mind, is if you were to take any city, you've, you know, you've worked a lot with city governments, national governments. If you were to sit any one of those administrations down after this COVID emergency has settled and were asked for your advice as to do we need to do anything different? The, it, what this reveals is that actually the answer is quite deep. It isn't a few techniques you need to adopt or a little bit of equipment you've got to invest in. You've got to really look at where are your, where's your frayed social fabric? Because in, in a crisis, that's going to give. Where are your non-existent partnerships, partnerships that aren't talking to each other but have to, etc.? And that's a very demanding audit. And, and a lot of modern day politics and government is run on such short-term rewards that investing in making yourself resilient to an unknown crisis up ahead, well, it's just too grown up and we're all adolescents. We've got fun to have here. We've got polls to win and elections to win and so on. Um, and perhaps being a bit unfair on our politicians, but that Danish example is quite striking. This is one of the, the points of our grand experiment here, right, is to compare and understand and to learn from how different organizations and different cities in different parts of the world with different pre-existing conditions are handling this. And the example you just gave on Denmark is, is striking and, and so in juxtaposition to what's happening here in the U.S., and for listeners who might not be that familiar with Denmark, I was speaking to a former ambassador uh, last week and they gave me this great, I'd never heard this before, but kind of how they explained uh, Denmark. And, and the analogy was it's, it's the size of Rhode Island, it has the population of Florida, and it has the GDP of New York. Uh, and I thought it was just a, such a great way to explain it. So, it, you know, it, it's always dangerous comparing Countries, you know, that are very different in shape, shape, size, culture, economy, et cetera. But from what you just said in that story, compared to what's happening in New York, where in, within our own country, with New York State and New York City emerging as the epicenter, what, what happened was this kind of crisis and this concern, this fear across the country that people were fleeing New York City and New York State and going to other parts of the country. And 
other states started barricading them off. They, they were border checks, so you couldn't drive into Florida. If you've got New York state license plates and you're driving through New Hampshire, cops will pull you over and ask you what your business is. Completely different than a country like Denmark saying, you know, we don't care that you're living in the epicenter of the, of the pandemic in New York City. Come home, we'll take care of you. Exactly the opposite. And I think what a lot of people are understanding and realizing is that this is, as we've been discussing week in and out, week in and out this is such a profound opportunity to, to change mindsets, to take care of people, to you know, speak to people's hearts and their minds. And when you hear things like Denmark, you immediately know that the people who have held on to their citizenship with Denmark, if they don't live there full time, have now got a, a lifetime appreciation for what their country and government has been doing. And, and that's priceless, that type of trust. Isn't it? And it occurs to me that one of the things that the coronavirus has done is caused all nations and all peoples around the world to look at what's happening to their neighbors in other countries, not, not even neighbors, but people in countries around the world. So we're very conscious of uh, how this has unfolded around the world. And we're now going to be very, very, even more acutely conscious, I think, of which countries have managed and are coming out of the torment and which ones are still stuck. And, and which ones are going to gradually come out and which ones are going to come out very bumpily and keep going backwards, because I think there may be some, some of those. And why this is going to be important for, for our conversation now is that it will be examples like New Zealand and Denmark, Australia, Taiwan, and so on, is that they will be shining beacons and people in government all around the world will naturally want to know, okay, what did you do? What's different about your your country? Was there some clever trick? And they'll all say, no, it wasn't a clever trick. There may have been some smart things we did, but it goes deeper than that. And to that point, Peter, you know, going deeper and maybe riffing off this idea of these pre-existing conditions, well, pre-existing conditions oftentimes is because of past history and past experience. We are who we are and we have the physical and mental, you know, battle wounds and scars associated from our life experiences. And that analogy, again, holds true for countries. So, and just kind of extrapolating from what you've just talked about in, in terms of countries looking at what each other have, have done, are you hearing any stories or any insights from companies and or cities that are handling this better or worse because of their history, because of, of their battle-tested scars because of what they've gone through or not. Have you, is that emerging or have you picked out any of these examples or differences? Definitely. Some very interesting sort of anecdotal evidence that your response to a crisis is likely to be very heavily influenced by your response to your previous most significant crisis or most relevant crisis. For example, one of the chief resilience officers who's in India, a major city in India, he was saying that that city uh, had to deal with the swine flu epidemic, 2008-9, and didn't do a very good job and was roundly criticized by its citizens for being slow off the mark and confusing and so on. They had the sort of tail end of swine flu for years. In fact, it's still going on. When was that? Was that like late 2000s? No, it was 2009, so about 10, 11 years ago. And um, they got a grip of that under citizen pressure and started doing proper screening and testing in the poorer areas of the city where it tended to break out. So they've got a reputation for having um, done the right thing and got on top of it gradually. So when this crisis came along, the city had a high expectation of themselves. They said, oh, no, we know how to do this kind of 
epidemiological control. And we've got some technology. We've got these vans that we send into the, the poorer slum areas and so on. And the citizens, by the same token, started the whole COVID-19 crisis with a reasonably confident expectation that the city would deal with it because they had this evidence from, from the last 10 years. So they're, they're having a, a, a reasonably rational experience of it. There are no wild curve balls emerging there. Whereas in this American city that I referred to earlier, a different issue, but back in the financial crisis. So similar time frame. Yeah, 10, 11 years ago. Yeah, similar time frame. And very interesting. Then the city decided it had to let go of 50%, roughly 50% of its staff complement, which was devastating, as you can imagine, for all concerned. And because of that, that was... That was such an unhealed wound in the sort of collective psyche of the city administration that what the chief resilience officer is telling me now is that because they're running out of money now, for obvious reasons, as most cities are, because the tax revenue has just dropped like a stone and their expenses have rocketed up, they are facing the possibility of having to lay off um, more workers. And nobody wants to talk about it because as she puts it, they've got PTSD from the last time, traumatic um, stress disorder. Yeah. And so it's hampering their ability to talk about and make that decision. I mean, I have a lot of sympathy because that must have been a shocking thing to have to do. But there are two different city approaches. And then another city that had to deal with a, a drought not long ago, same sort of teams still in place. And they had the feeling that they dealt well with the drought. So they are, first of all, emboldened by the, their team behavior, and they clicked in very quickly to deal with this one. They sort of kind of put back on their crisis hats. And secondly, they took a conscious decision at the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic that they were going to learn, monitor, reflect, rather like we're doing in this project. It's very interesting that they have got a whole program to get their managers to download what they're learning as they're learning it. Because, because having had a crisis only sort of three years ago, they realized this is not going to be our last crisis. We're going to have another one and another one. So let's get smart. What's also interesting, though, is I'm hearing lots of examples from, from the cities. I'm not hearing so many from the companies. Are they dealing with this? Is their learning curve is steep? Are there not these differences? For companies because these companies exist in multiple geographies at the same time. So whether it's in India or the US or Europe, they've got more institutional knowledge because they've been exposed to more things in more places, thereby more resilient. That's a very interesting question. I actually do have a story from one senior executive. I was asking him about lessons that he had learned sort of leadership lessons he'd learned out of crisis. And he told me a story about how um, they'd had a, a commercial crisis, if you like, when something went hideously wrong with a major contract that they were running. And as a result of this, they very nearly had to let an entire team dissolve and be made unemployed and so on. But he and his co-leader of the team decided to meet and actually share the full story with their entire team in a meeting and that transformed the energy and all kinds of sort of responses came out. And it meant that they were able to steer their way through. And that taught him to be radically transparent with your staff, even though the things you might have to say are going to not be on the surface, 
very nice, but you far better to be upfront in a crisis and then you have a chance to to get fresh eyes, fresh information to help solve it. So, so that was a personal example of a corporate crisis. But I actually think that corporations, these global corporations who are the ones that we have on this project, it's an interesting question whether they, to what degree they learn from the sorts of disasters and crises that hit cities. Because when a crisis hits a city, the whole city sort of knows about it and deals with it and mops up after it and so on. But a corporation might have an office there or a plant there, but it's a small part of their global footprint. So this is one of those rare, rare experiences of the entire footprint all over the world undergoing the same crisis. Right. It is different than other things that happened in the past. And as a result, probably provides different learning and insights from the companies dealing with it. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. I was just going to take us in a slightly new direction, um, building off of this kind of theme of, again, pre-existing conditions, how we're influenced by the past, but then stepping forward in terms of the future. What does that this now look like moving forward? So can, depending on who we are organizationally, you know, as the spirit of a city, the heart of a city, what we've been impacted by, influenced by, how we're handling this now how is this preparing us or not for what's coming and kind of riffing off some of the conversations we've had in past weeks, Peter, about the rapidity, uh, the uncertainty, the now normal from our previous chats and being faced with uncertainty. Where does this take us? And, and how is this being thought about? Cause we're so focused right now, still in kind of wrapped around the axle of COVID and reopening and the impacts of COVID as we reopen. What about all the other curveballs that get thrown at us around the world on a regular basis. Well, I said that I had a little bonbon for you. Oh, get this this is it, huh? This is <laughs> You've obviously spotted the the dessert trolley arriving through the restaurant door here. Here we go. So, it's a kind of a no-brainer if you live in certain parts of the world that you you're heading into hurricane season off the east coast of the states and one of the people I'm talking to who runs a, a big organization, big business in the States, uh, which is supplying federal and state authorities with emergency and disaster-related services and supplies, is getting ready for some very hard conversations with authorities in Florida, for example, and up the East Coast. As he put it to me, we're pretty good. We're, we're well organized, of having done this for many years now with evacuations and so on. Occasionally, we get a hard, a much harder storm than, than usual, and it's a bit tougher. But, you know, we know how to do this, but we don't know how to do this with social distancing. I mean, if you think of the gymnasiums and the auditoriums, community halls that are filled with people evacuating their homes, can't do that in the same way in the middle of a pandemic. So it seems to me that when he told me this, I thought, yeah, that's interesting. It seems as though the, the gods have said, okay, humans, we're going to give you this pandemic to play with now. We're going we're gonna to hold back for a while and just let you play with this, see how you get on. And now they've decided, okay, time's up. Let's bring back some of the normal sort of shocks and stresses to make your life a little more complicated. It's interesting. I hadn't thought about this, but you're, you're right. I haven't, there hasn't been a whole lot of you know, tsunamis, earthquakes, hurricanes in the last couple of months, now that you mention it, which, you know, is now rather commonplace to see popping up in the news on a frequent basis. But, but you're right, that hasn't happened. But I can definitely attest to the fact that hurricane season is coming to the East Coast. And I hadn't thought of that. I mean, yeah, sadly, we are getting 
quite used to and, and pretty good at dealing with some of the impacts of tornadoes, hurricanes. Uh, and you're right that how you do that and, and how you provide immediate shelter for people is, is in public, you know, sporting arenas, gymnasiums, large churches. And that is kind of the antithesis of social distancing, let alone what the impacts of things like that could be to the healthcare system that is already overstretched and overburdened. That's kind of terrifying. You know, I, I, ever since I first saw as a kid photographs on the news of destroyed wooden homesteads in South Carolina, Florida, and so on after a hurricane, where you saw houses perched up trees blown there by the hurricane. And I thought, how on earth does any community recover from that? It looks like a war zone. But guess what people do? Humans and human societies are remarkably uh, resilient and will come back from and adapt to these circumstances. So I've no doubt that they will work out how to cope with a hurricane while maintaining social distancing, more or less. But the thing that occurs to me is that if our societies are going to spend so much of our time and energy and money in adapting to multiple crises, some of them deep and long-lasting like this pandemic and others more, more like shocks, then you have to ask, at what point does a society really start to regress economically and possibly even socially? Because it's simply, every time it starts to get back up on its feet, it gets knocked down and so on. There's, um, that, that's just a, that's something for a future conversation. Indeed. Well, you know, it kind of brings us right back to the beginning. And our analogy of pre-existing conditions, it's the best defense is a good offense. And we need to invest in ourselves and our organizations, in the relationships, in the trust, and in order to be prepared for when those additional complex cascading impacts happen. And that's the best thing that you can do. It's, it's proactive, preventative exercises. And sometimes those are the, those are the hardest to do. It's, it's always easier to think about other people or analyze other processes, but oftentimes it's hard to look in the mirror and do what's best. The absolutely fascinating stuff. Seems like there was a lot of really in, interesting and intense conversations you had this week. And uh, can't wait to hear again how this is all evolving and, and what we're, we're learning from this collectively and individually next week. I look forward to joining you in that very conversation, Seth. You keep well until then. Thank you for joining us once again as we reflected on some of the insights from week five interviews. These conversations are definitely one of the highlights of my week. I hope you feel the same way, or at least find these insights useful and interesting. If you found us through Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Stitcher, and want to find out more about our project, please click on the link in the notes below. There's a lot more content on resilient leadership for you to explore. This is Seth Schultz, and on behalf of the project team and the Resilient Shift, thank you for listening. See you next week.